Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Voices, a podcast by Equanimity Foundation, where we share global perspectives on international development, peace and security, and social innovation. I'm your host, Alex Polk, and I am super excited to be speaking with Mr. Carl Steinacker today. Carl, how are you doing? Hello, Alex. I'm doing very fine. Great. Great to hear. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I just want to say a little bit about you. So uh, Carl is an expert on global mobility and digital identity and works at such organizations like Digital Equity and the International Civil Society Center. Um, So Carl, I'm so excited to talk about global mobility today. And if you're cool, um, we can just jump right in. Yes, please do. Wonderful. So um, Carl has written a piece for Equanimity Foundation very recently, um, which you can find on our website, www.eqfn.org. But in your blog, you tell the stories of people in African capital cities who are demonstrating against the deportation of citizens from Europe. So why is this important and what does this signify for global mobility? Yes, in Bamako in Mali, I witnessed in 1997, so that's more than 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, how the public approved that a group of men deported from France about 60 or 70 or so, smashed the aircraft they were flown in with. A decade later, street demonstrations erupted in Banjul in the Gambia when deportees from Germany were shackled in chains and brought back. Mm -hmm. I think these incidents show that there are two different narratives about global mobility. The dominating discourse in the media and politics is that of the global north and that of illegal flow of poor migrants and refugees these terms being used synonymously and Mm -hmm. fed with images of people of color. The narrative in the global south looks rather different. It -hmm. looks at the current practices of mobility as a contemporary variant of colonialism, while the citizens of the north enjoy often visa-free travel opportunities on a global scale. The citizens of the south are locked in procedures that deprive them of meaningful, legitimate mobility opportunities. So there's definitely a contrast between those two perspectives. Which of the narratives do you prefer? Well, since the times, ancient times, humans uh, Mm -hmm. move around since they have invented agriculture and abandoned other types of production. With the exception of transhumans, the mobility of the individual was actually limited. During one's lifetime, a person might not have traveled further than a few miles around his or her homestead. Bondage and slavery restricted personal freedoms and mobility. However, with the advent of Western supremacy, different new types of global mobility were introduced. Intercontinental trade in commodities and colonial conquest, large-scale human trafficking, such as slave trade, or state-induced labor migration. Long-distance travel of convenience and privileged culturism has been added lately. Today, you may add another few types of mobility for minority groups, such as business and paid expatriate travel, including those of aid workers, or the possibility to travel for educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Technological innovations, such as air transport, facilitate global and long-distance mobility. You know, in 2019, that means before the COVID-19 crisis, <laughs> the airline industry alone had 4.5 billion passengers. And this does not even include those people who travel by surface in trains or in coaches. 
Thus, we have two different perspectives on global mobility. And those perspectives are diametrically different and create two opposing narratives that are used for political purposes. The northern narrative is, I mentioned it, of a besieged community that defends their borders against unwarranted immigration by refugees and impoverished economic migrants. The terminology deployed normally is such as migrant crisis, invasion, and other attributes that underline the cultural and religious difference. And uh, they are, uh, and this uh, um, migration is meant to inhibit peaceful coexistence. Mm-hmm. Now, the southern narrative is quite different. You know, for for uh, as it as it stands, global mobility has remained a colonial project. The way global cross-border mobility is organized by the global north makes legitimate travel of citizens of the south very difficult. The vast majority of people in Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia does not qualify for visa-free travel nor can they easily obtain visas to travel to the north. Depending on the country, of up to half of the visa applications are rejected. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, embassies, consulates of the countries of the north reject up to half of those uh, applications. And that is particularly the case with citizens of countries from sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Now, even the elites and the middle-class citizens that may have reasonable chances to obtain a visa, perceive the procedures in embassies and consulates to be humiliating and uh, to be inherently racist. The fact that only comparatively few visas are issued is the measure demonstrating that racism is systemic. Now, attempts by Western states to regulate and manage migratory flows are considered self-serving only, given that opportunities for legitimate travel including long-term migration, are severely restricted. As a result, risky and illegal population movements take place for which the Global South refuses to take any responsibility. Finally, the Northern narrative fails to acknowledge that migration and forced displacement are foremost affecting the states of the South and that only an insignificant minority of refugee and migrants is seeking destinations in the North. Yeah, you know, at that last point too, it made me also think that Northern narrative might also fail to acknowledge that perhaps some of their own policies might be externally pushing people to migrate. So um, in one of our previous podcasts, we spoke about climate change, and there's always talk about a climate refugee crisis. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly interesting subject, and uh, I'm, I'm curious as to how you got your start in researching um, digital tech and humanitarian aid and that cross-section there. Um, and Could you elaborate on what the link is between digital technology, humanitarian aid, and global mobility, since these seem like something that you wouldn't, off the top of your head, put together. But the more that you're describing it, there's there's a clear link. Yeah. As an aid worker of my generation, and I grew up with electric typewriters rather than computers, (laughs) VHF radios (laughs) rather than mobile phone, you know, and I've been working very remote parts of the world, my initial exposure to digital technologies was, let's say, rather limited. (laughs) It was refugee work which brought me and showed me the opportunities uh, and made me curious and later a promoter of technological innovations in, in, in humanitarian settings. You know, if you work in a refugee setting, then you realize how limited mobility can be or even more limited 
uh, it can be compared to the normal citizens of the South. I saw closed camps in Tanzania, camps with watchtowers and guards in the no man's land between Thailand and Cambodia, and an entire population of a million people without travel documents in a quasi-detention situation in the Gaza Strip. But there are examples where technology, the way I experienced it, made a difference in humanitarian work. So in, in 1994, it's also 25 years ago, in the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda, I realized that only a functioning system of registration and ration cards allowed us, the aid agencies that is, to wrest away the power of Rwandan politicians which held power in those camps by manipulating the distribution of food and other relief items. Right. You know, a decade later in Sierra Leone, after a vicious civil war that prevented 10,000 of young people to go to school and to obtain mm -hmm. school leaving certificates, the introduction of online courses helped young adults to catch up and make up for the years lost. And again in Sierra Leone at the time, I saw the power of GIS in camp planning. Exact ma mapping allowed to establish camps that were small and not overcrowded, aligned to the local ecosystem and conducive for peaceful coexistence with local villages that were very poor themselves. Now, um, I was, as I said, aid worker and uh, I worked for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And uh, that institution, like many others, undergoes from time to time what they call change management processes. So in 1998 and the years that followed, I was part of a mm. team that was working to bring change to UNHCR. In those years, I made a deliberate effort to learn digital skills, to understand technological trends, and to look at their relevance. I tried to put loose ends together, linking my specific work experience from places in the Middle East and Africa, plus a better understanding on how the organization operates worldwide, and from a headquarters perspective. And I was adding newly gained perspective on contemporary political and technical developments. You know, and then based on that later, I led for many years the global registration department of UNHCR and was at the forefront of technological innovations from introducing biometrics to developing a digital identity strategy and a uh, so-called trust strategy for refugees. I like how that paints the narrative of how there's been a gradual transformation, um, especially in things like refugee registration and humanitarian aid, uh, from its infancy uh, as technology was still kind of in this very emerging state to now how we're seeing these wonderful adaptations of tech for humanitarian aid. What trends have you noticed in global mobility and especially in relation to aid? You know, Rather than trends, let me speak of waves. Uh, in the humanitarian sector, the first wave started in the 1990s and focused on the modernization of back office functions in the various organizations, accounting, supply chain, human resources. It was labeled the professionalization of aid and applied basically methods and tools from the private sector. The second wave that arrived a few years later altered management processes the log frame concept and so-called results-based management actually developed by NASA to land on the moon became the gold oh. standard for planning. Be it for large camps, housing hundreds of thousands of people or a tiny community gardening project. And <laughs> the third wave hit us after September 11th. 
compassionate surveillance. Rather than, a, rather than to plan for positive outcomes for the group, this time the aid recipient was to be identified individually, assisted when necessary, but certainly identified and vetted on security grounds. The fourth wave is on its way. It is still timid, but I think it's already noticeable. And it is around private sector involvement, complementing and maybe in the future in some areas replacing non-profit organizations in the delivery of aid. In a somewhat pessimistic segue, I, I fear, but are there fears of the way in which digital technology can come across as cyber colonialism? This is a phrase I know that gets thrown around a lot. Are there talks uh, about efforts to decolonize humanitarian aid, especially through cyber colonialism? And could you elaborate a bit more on these topics and how any decolonization efforts have taken place? You know, decolonizing aid is seen as the unfinished business of mm -hmm. decolonization in general and is therefore a much older discussion. It predates the discussion mm -hmm. on cyber colonialism. However, there are a few interesting touching points. Now, when we talk about decolonizing aid, then we are basically uh, looking back uh, at, at similarities between the time of uh, colonization and, 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 and later. Uh, when the former European colonies gained independence, the era of development in humanitarian mm -hmm. aid actually started. Paul Curian, uh, who was a aid worker himself and a publicist, wrote last year the, that there is a need to decolonize aid from the following angles. So he says, aid flows map soft power relationships between former colonial powers and former colonies. The career trajectory of many international aid workers often resembles that of colonial administrators. And how the aid beneficiary has been constructed is almost like post-colonial other, replacing the colonial subjugated subject. Today, there are a great number of initiatives in this respect, stretching from the decolonization and reshaping of narratives to tech development by startups, academical institutions, and civic tech communities, often in the global south. Now, if we talk about cyber colonialism, that obviously is a much mm -hmm. more recent discussion, uh, you know, we, we may start uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the global north, the discussions in, in North America and Western Europe, where the extraction of personal data is highly controversial. But, you know, this discussion tends to center mm -hmm. on our countries in the north, where the main tech companies are based and which pursue such business models. It's also in the OECD countries or the global north, where civil society organizations <clears throat> excuse me, are in the forefront to denounce and hedge such business practices, advocating for high mm -hmm. data protection standards. Now, there is a completely separate debate which has developed around practices in China, which are regarded to be you know, a system of state-sponsored surveillance and mm -hmm. digital totalitarianism. China is being accused to export its surveillance systems to the global south. So Ben, is that like a fear that they're going to expand things like the Great Firewall to other countries that are in their periphery? Yes, uh, that's a market, you know, <laughs> there is a market for this. <laughs> of course. And indeed, uh, uh, there are countries where we for sure know that uh, discussions are ongoing. Okay. Now, 
But from a Western perspective, in the global South, uh, you know, the, the very same tech companies which operate up uh, in the global North um, are present. They operate on a global scale. And they are replicating mm -hmm. the problems of personal data extraction, which we know ourselves. So the term data colonialism goes even further, since it also describes the asymmetry of information that often exists between donor governments, international institutions like the World Bank, but also international NGOs, vis-à-vis -vis the communities and governments in the global south. Thus, it is, the, it is held that, for instance, many NGOs may collect, use and share data without much benefit coming back to the countries in which they operate. You know, some okay. international NGOs have yet to prove that they take data protection and digital rights of their beneficiaries, in inverted commas, if I may say, as seriously <laughs> as they take the privacy right, rights of their private donors. So there appears to be this imbalance between the donor states and the institutions that are providing aid, taking personal data and um, these digital identities online or in the virtual space and not really giving back to the communities that they're operating in. Um, so it seems like there are some gaps and that would allow policymakers to explore this area more for creating new rules and regulations in providing humanitarian aid. So what are your goals and what are your thoughts in terms of policy and technology, um, especially in regard to global mobility, like looping this back in? Yeah. You know, I think that uh, today global and cross-border mobility is not being discussed holistically. Um, mm. We mentioned the different narratives earlier, uh, especially um, on the political agenda, on the media agenda, there are certain subsets, uh, such as asylum and refugees or illegal migration that dominate the public discourse. Technological research innovations do not seem to be focusing on demo democratizing global mobility. Rather, the piloting of new and innovative mobility schemes is restricted to the facilitation of travel within the global north. The case in point is the research around digital vaccination certificates that would mainly mm. benefit the already privileged populations of the global north, which is in the process of being vaccinated, while the population of the global south is still waiting for their fair share of vaccines. Now, what are the, the, the goals uh, for, for such a discussion on global mobility? You know, if you look at it, globalization has gone far quite far in recent years. There have been agreements made and reached uh, and institutions have been established that promote the free flow of capital, of goods mm. and of services across borders. But when it comes to mobility, a few technical standards for machine readable passports exist, but otherwise each state decides unilaterally whom to admit on its territory. So the first policy goal should be to move global mobility into the realm of internationally negotiated agreements that balance the interests of the various stakeholders. And by doing so, I think we require re regulatory frameworks that countries establish, adhere to, and implement jointly. Secondly, I think we have to rethink the claim of states, particularly in the global north, that they have 
the unrestricted and unilateral sovereign right to decide, according to their own economic and security interests, the terms of mobility affecting them, including the right to return and push back individuals that do not fit their requirements of usefulness. In the case of labor, labor migration, or privilege in the case of tourism, family visits, family unification, or vulnerability in the case of granting or withholding asylum. So this second policy goal, again, is to hedge and to end unilateralism. And what effect would this have on the middle class decision makers and, and potential travelers in the South? Meanwhile, you know, the elites and middle classes of the countries in the South are enduring collective punishment, at least in their own <laughs> perception, because mm -hmm. of real or perceived abuse of immigration laws by some of their compatriots. They have to undergo lengthy, expensive and often invasive procedures to apply for a visa. In right. the case of rejection, there is normally no possibility of recourse. Worse even, rejection by one country might entail a rejection by other countries too due to data exchange practices uh, they have never consented to. Mm -hmm. As a result of this frustration, uh, they will not cooperate at a political level with the policies proposed by them by the North. At best, you know, these elites and middle classes will pay lip service. But there is no real unity of purpose. Hence, the, the policy goal here is a new paradigm of regulated travel that is no longer based on the rating of a passport. The poorer the passport issuing country, the lesser are mobility opportunities of each passport holder. And I think here is where technology can come in. You know, technology is already used to control travel of ordinary travelers, refugees, migrants. There are databases with personal information, pictures, biometric imprints, whatnot. At times, this data collection and storage is outsourced to private companies. In addition, there is airlines, banks, social media, mobile network operators, and a multitude of other players who have amassed data that is used for data mining and analysis. So technology is used to secure borders and to protect travel documents against falsification. You know, every technological advancement has implication on global mobility. However, the right. individual is caught in this spider net. The strings are pulled by others. Hence, the policy goal is to give agency to the individual data subject, the traveler or the would-be traveler, over, the, over that data. And easing restricted mobility is linked to trust and leverage. Until proven otherwise, states trust their citizens and foreign residents on their territory. They have jurisdiction over them, which can easily be enforced. However, states find it much more difficult to trust foreign citizens. Hence, admitting a non-citizen to one's territory requires a minimum of trust. Now, technology can establish trust systems whereby a person wishing to travel can, if he or she so wishes, provide data to the authorities demanding. In addition, technology can, be can establish the mobility requirements in a transparent manner and allow for recourse in case of litigation. Technology can reduce biases. So the policy goal is to establish an effective regulatory framework that respects the digital rights of the individual 
for the use of technology and data that allows for the establishment of trust systems that facilitate mobility, global mobility, that is. So I love that you're speaking about potential policies and regulations that could be applied for technology, because one of the last things we like to do at EQF is promote the idea that technology is bad or this very scary unknown that that should be feared, especially when we talk about social innovation. So as you argue, um, technology could facilitate global mobility, but are there risks that persist when you digitalize global mobility, especially regarding you know data privacy and ethics? I think that's a big a big sticking point for a mm. lot of people. Well, you know, there are natural disasters and there are man-made disasters. You know, <laughs> yes. a dystopian society of surveillance, manipulation, and oppression would fall under the category of human-made disaster. Hence, it is upon us, governments and all stakeholders civil society to use creative thinking and to negotiate, to regulate and to enforce cross-border mobility, which is not at all dystopian, but facilitating uh, mobility and, and uh, makes people to enjoy uh, their rights. So mm -hmm. therefore, I'm in advocating a rule-based system that replaces unilateralism with meaningful institutionalized international cooperation, addresses system systemic biases to the detriment of passport holders from nations of the global south and does not really and that's important deploy technology haphazardously but to serve a clearly defined purpose and within a system of governments and oversight that balances the poli political objectives of states which is to protect their citizens and to ensure security with the digital and human rights of those who want to make use of the increased opportunities of global mobility. And a system which gives data into the hands of the individual, agency of data that is, who equally plays to the rules uh, set for global mobility and understands that in each case he or she has to manage his or her data and balancing this with his or her prior priority within a system of global trust and transparency. Now, mm -hmm. I think one has here, because that sounds a little bit abstract, talk about <laughs> winners and losers, you know. Right. A tech-supported system of multilateral and rule-based global mobility has to be understood within the setting of a globalized international society that facilitates the exchange of information and knowledge via the internet or the commercial flows of capital, trade, services, and labor. Now, plenty of studies have shown that while globalization has had positive effects on, on many, creating value, reducing poverty, but there have been negative outcomes too, the exclusion of many, you know, and the very uh, markedly uneven distribution of revenues, the unabated destruction of the ecological habitat of our planet, mm -hmm. meaning climate change. So it is important to understand this context when assessing the future outcomes of the proposed universal system of mobility. Will it change the lives of people? Today, a quarter to a half of visa requests, as I mentioned, are turned down by the consular services in the major states of the global north, the US and the European countries that have created the Schengen space. Many Africans will never ask for a visa since they know that they can neither comply with the requirements nor can they afford to engage in a costly application procedure. These problems are systemic 
it is not the individual who is at fault. However, the measure of success of any new mobility system has to be its capacity to overcome these systemic faults and biases and allow more mobility in a way that is not perceived to be discriminatory in any way. But still, many will remain outside the reach of the system because they lack access to digital devices, digital literacy and finances. However, regular travel is most of the time cheaper than putting oneself into the hands of those who make a living from people smuggling. I think it must be therefore an objective of the new mobility system to redirect money from the black market of illegal travel to the sphere of legitimate travel. And technology ought to support that important objective. I, I think that's a fascinating point and I really I really find it interesting your uh, suggestion about redirecting money from the black market and like the illegal um, travel enterprises that exist. So, it, of course, there's the issue where trying to avoid dystopian systems might not be fully ethical, especially when we're talking about issues that states have with um, cyber governance, cyber sovereignty, um, and all of that. So what are your ideas about ethics with some of these policies and with technological development? Well, I think, you know, technology has to be regulated and governed. Otherwise, it's risk right. to become quickly unethical. Like in other areas of the global data economy, a number of principles have to be implemented in order to mitigate the imbalance of power between those who want to travel and those who decide. Mm -hmm. The technology deployed in the new mobility system is part of a multi-layered institutional system which includes policy setting and supervision, management, recourse, diversity, and an independent evaluation. Now, these principles are, first, a governance system that is rule-based, transparent, and includes not only states, but also other stakeholders that represent those who seek mobility opportunities and civil society actors such as digital rights advocates, but also business interests. Then I think another principle is data agency and transparency, which will ensure that any applicant understands the requirements for mobility, the process and the mm -hmm. criteria for decision making, that uh, he and she can track the use of his or her data and consent or withdraw it at various stages of the process. Individual agency over data includes the right for deletion. Mm, okay. And then transparency in the context of personal accountability means that any decision must be attributed to a natural person and includes decision making based on artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, where the content of the algorithm is not understood, maybe not understood by the applicant or even by the decision maker. Also, we will need special measures to ensure a non-biased and fair system that does neither discriminate nor operate by privileging some over others. Each case is dealt or has to be dealt with on its own merit and in an equitable fashion. Ethical principles as laid down in the Declaration of Cities Coalition for Digital Rights and the Universal Guidance on Artificial Intelligence must be respected throughout. And there are many more of those documents which, you know, line out principles of ethical use of technology. So we don't need to in reinvent the wheel and set up new principles for tech in mobility. 
we can do with those already developed by the digital rights movement. Awesome. So it's good to know that there are already documents and um, initiatives that have been in place. So there is like this precedent or this, as you say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And therefore, moving forward, how... How do we want to transform the international community's stance on global mobility? How can we bring the whole IC in on this conversation? Well, I think that most governments realize that there is no sense of common purpose and direction when it comes to manage global mobility, in particular labor migration and the movement of forcibly displaced persons, meaning refugees. You know, there are non-binding multilateral agreements, the so-called global compacts on migration and refugees, which have been adopted in recent years, but they have not led to increased international cooperation. Hence, unilateralism remains the order of the day, and in particular, the Global North believes that their perceived problems will, if not be resolved, so at least be contained. And they believe they can use technology for this, from biometrics to drones and night surveillance, equipment, that seal their borders and keep people out. Or, or I should, or end by pressurizing the Global South into readmission agreements so that 10,000s of migrants can be deported and sent back to the countries they transited through or they originate from. But in reality, mm -hmm. most governments with some degree of enlightenment realize that unilateralism is unlikely to succeed and will end in a dead end that uh, uh, um, makes international cooperation the most promising way forward. But in a first phase, collaboration requires consensus. And there have been historic precedents, and maybe we should go to, back to the archives and look what has been done earlier. You know, right. what comes to my mind is the Cold War. You know, the Cold War was still in full swing when in 1975, the European governments, you know, and there was Western Europe and Eastern Europe, Canada and the US adopted the Helsinki Accords on Security and Cooperation. And in that <coughs> accord, uh, uh, there was a list of types of travel that states were supposed to promote and to further develop, such as contacts and regular meetings on the basis of family ties, reunification mm -hmm. of families, travel for professional or personal reasons. You know, they agreed to improve the conditions for tourism. And they agreed to have more meetings among young people and for sports. They even agreed that uh, if it comes to migrant labor, that those problems should be resolved by the parties directly concerned, meaning the country of origin as well as the country of destination, in order uh, to uh, come to solutions which are in the in mutual interest. The document, you know, I'm still speaking about the 1975 document, was very detailed, demanding that participating states should simplify and administer flexibly the procedure for exit and entry, ease regulations, mm -hmm. and gradually lower, where necessary, the fees for visa and official travel documents. I think today, civil society in the North, in the South, everywhere, should get involved and advocate for a Helsinki type of global agreement, setting out the values and principles, the objectives and procedures to regulate global mobility in a holistic manner, 
You know, the compartmentalization into subsets like refugees, legal and illegal migration, leaving out other forms of legitimate mobility will not lead to this consensual arrangement. Right. It's uh, only in a revamped political environment that new technologies will play a critical role and contribute to a more equitable globalization, inclusive of the interests of the global south. I think that's a wonderful proposition. The the Helsinki-type agreement is something that definitely should be revisited, and I'm hoping that that's something that we'll see, um, if not governments, institutions and organizations start to push for. Uh, so I think it's a, a wonderfully optimistic note to end on. But before we do, um, I my last question would be, what is one main takeaway that you would want the audience to leave with? Ooh, uh, please allow me to propose two takeaways. Sounds good. <laughs> the first one is think big. You know, international mm-hmm. mobility is there to stay. Issues arising around it can't be resolved by each state alone and for itself. International mobility is a win-win if the interests of all stakeholders are taken into account. And second, don't be afraid. Technology can modernize and facilitate global mobility if it is governed and regulated. I think that's that's perfect. And again, as we've been saying, like you know, the last thing that we would want is for anyone to say technology is very scary and something to be feared. It can and should be embraced, and you know, with the right regulations, it can even be utilized to evoke more good in a lot of these systems, especially when it comes to global mobility, digital identity in all those um, all areas in relation. So, Carl, thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. It has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I've learned so much uh, across the spectrum of topics from mobility and uh, digital, um, digital tools in, in humanitarian registration. And it's just been lovely having you on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And if people want to learn more about this topic and about you and your work, is there a website that they can visit? Well, first of all, your website with my blog article, which lists mm-hmm. the number of uh, sources where to look further. You can see and read Carl's post on our website at www.eqfn.org. And you can also find it on our social media platforms at We Are Equanimity on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thank you all so much for joining me, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, Carl. I hope you have a great day.